Eric. Kill Eric. Kill Eric. Miss Lewis, I want you to tell me everything you know about your accompanist. Oh, no. Eric couldn't be mixed up in this one. Well, he's... Well, we're engaged. Suppose he's two people. The man you love and a ghoul. Welcome to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And on tonight's 171st episode, or wait, is it 172nd? Wait. If you don't know, I don't. 172nd. Man, I can. I just looked at it to remind myself, and I still couldn't remember it. It's now aging. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> the Bloody Pit coming right at you tonight. Mm-hmm. Troy Gwynn joins me again to talk about 1940s universal horror films. And tonight, we get to, uh, well, with the 1940s, it's a little bit of an oddity because it is a standalone film. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Um, as we'll get into, there was talk of it not being a standalone film, but yeah. it is a standalone film, yes. Um, strange as it may seem, 1943's The Mad Ghoul did not generate a sequel, even though it was pretty successful mm-hmm. uh, it was produced pretty quickly to be the co-feature of Son of Dracula which we did last time right mm-hmm. and um, you can see how that would be a pretty good double feature you know mm-hmm. ghoulish undead things you know killing people to survive or to at least change themselves back into a, mm-hmm. a non-Jack Pierce emaciated creature thing mm-hmm. um, Mad Ghoul came out on November the 12th 1943 it is a scant 65 minutes, which means overstaying its welcome was never even a consideration. <laughs> nope, nope. Go get in and get out. Yeah, oh, definitely get in and get out. Um, interesting cast. Yes. Let's talk about the cast first. David Bruce uh, is the person who we probably have the least amount of time spent in the past series of these films with, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, he was really kind of an up-and-comer at the time. But he had been an up-and-comer and had been signed to a couple of different contracts at a couple of different um, studios. This was his most recent uh, three-year stint at Universal. And you you got to admit that he had to think at this point that with this being kind of the, the best role he could get at this point, that maybe this career wasn't going to be what he thought it could be mm-hmm. when he started out as an actor. But David Bruce... Does a fine job here. I think he's. I think he's quite good. Yeah, because he's got. I mean, it's not an easy role. He's got to do a lot of a lot yeah. with it. He has to kind of convey, make you feel sorry for him, and yet at the same time, I think you also understand what's going on. With we'll get into this, but there's this is a well written, a lot of well written adult stuff in this film. You know, yeah, as far as yeah. yeah, some stuff that um, it's it, it. You're right. It's adult in that way mm-hmm. in which. Uh, kids wouldn't necessarily catch it or yeah. pay that much attention mm-hmm. to it mm-hmm. or think it's just adults jibber-jabbering or right. whatever. Right. But when you examine it as an mm-hmm. adult, it takes on a very sinister, maybe mm-hmm. I guess would be the mm-hmm. good way to put it, mm-hmm. kind of a sinister undertone that just shows you how much just darkness there is underneath yeah. all of this. Not that there isn't enough darkness on the surface. So David Bruce as Ted Allison, the poor bastard who gets turned into a Ghoul. A ghoul. Dare we say a mad ghoul. <laughs> His uh, love interest, or 
who he well pre- presumes is his love interest is Evelyn Anchors, who uh, mm. or Evelyn or did we ever decide how we're supposed to pronounce that's her name? That's a good point. That's a yeah. Even, I don't know that we ever did, but we should because she is definitely our our patron. You know, of, I mean, she is the, oh, yeah. the queen of our our this whole series. I mean, there's no question she is the actress that that we see the most through this whole stretch of, of films we're doing. Very true. She has a um, a less than than normally thankless role. She's yes. got a little meat. She's got a little meat to play with in this film, yeah. which is good for yeah. her. Speaking of the double feature that it's with, I mean, that was one of our complaints from the last, you know, from Son of Dracula was yeah. just how wasted she kind of is in that role. And so, yeah, she really actually has got something to do here. Not as much as uh, she was apparently supposed to. Apparently, they were originally was supposed to do her own singing and they had actually yeah. kind of hyped that up but once again we get to run into that old budget and time constraints from Universal like nope sorry you just got to lip sync and yeah yeah we're not going to be doing that it's yeah. a shame it's a great idea although we are going to bullshit everybody in the publicity material and yeah. claim that you are actually singing these songs yeah yeah and to her credit she does a really fine job I think of yeah. faking singing these songs yeah. on the screen um, being a singer already and being yeah. able to sing probably I'm sure helped a lot with at least knowing how to convey that you know project that right right there's a big difference between someone who doesn't know oh, yeah. what your what your face and, and and throat and body are going to look like yeah. when you're singing certain notes mm-hmm. she knows what it is mm-hmm. she knows how to how to how to make herself look as if she's actually singing this stuff which is why I could have easily bought that it was her doing the singing yeah. Yeah. or even if it was just her singing over a track mm-hmm. but actually singing it when filming and it, right. may, it, and it may actually have been that way so that mm-hmm. it would be easier for her to convey that she was actually singing if she was actually singing even if that track wasn't being used on the film itself yeah nevertheless she is always uh, she's always a joy she's always good and here she gets to actually play some interesting stuff yeah she didn't have a whole lot to do but she's got more than uh-huh. she did in Son of Dracula uh-huh. that's for sure uh, Turin Bay. Yeah. Always a welcome sight. A very, Definitely. Very handsome man mm-hmm. and one who uh, we'll have some quotes from later on. He always seems to enjoy, re- he really enjoys working on this film and most films. He, his memories of his time in Hollywood really are very positive. And I keep forgetting that it wasn't until the 90s when uh, he kind of came out of retirement yeah. to, to work on Babylon, Babylon 5. Babylon 5, I know. I thought that too. So if I kind of hadn't thought about that in years, I thought, oh, God, that's right. He, he did end up on Babylon 5, which is such a great series. And, yeah. But, yeah, but he's good. it's always good to see him get a chance to play a good guy too, you know, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he's a nice guy in this film. Yeah, and, he's, per- and, and, he's a perfectly sweet yeah. guy who, yeah. who honestly feels a little guilty about yeah. what's happened, yeah. you yeah. know, with between him and, and mm-hmm. Evelyn Anker's character. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Robert Armstrong, yes, mm-hmm. the man yeah. who brought Kong back to New York City in 1933. I always forget that Robert Armstrong did more Other than things, just know. King it's, Kong it's, and it's, Son of Kong. It's somehow still disorient, jarring when he suddenly pops up I in another know. film, you know, and you're just, especially when he's always playing Robert Armstrong. He's always that other Robert Armstrong that character, thing, yeah. and you're just like. This I know it is a strange feeling when he when he suddenly pops up. You're like, oh yeah, he was an actor. You know, he wasn't just like you know, he wasn't actually Carl Denham. You know, like, <laughs> but you, I, but uh, honestly, that's I, I get that same feeling every time I see him in a movie. <laughs> and then again, he was in the zillion freaking movies. Yeah, yeah. So I have this experience again and again and again. It's like, oh shit, it's it's Carl Denham. What the hell are we doing here? Oh, yeah, that's right. Exactly. He, that's right. King Kong wasn't a documentary. Okay, he was an actor. I'll be damned. Okay, so. Robert Armstrong is great in this, and uh, he gets he gets some he gets some good stuff to do he in did. this film too. He, he has he has actually one of my uh, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. We'll get to that in a little mm-hmm. while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to warn everybody up front: 
We are going to end spoiling, up spoiling this spoilers. because it's only 65 minutes and it's yeah. 100 years old. So come on, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's not 100 years old, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's 80 years old. So yeah. let's get with this. Milburn Stone has yeah. popped up again. Yes, the Doctor on Gunsmoke, long before he became the Doctor on Gunsmoke, is playing a police de- a police detective in this. Detective, well, he's actually a Sergeant Macklin. Yeah. And so uh, our short little Mr. Stone is <laughs> plugging away there. Yes, we have to mention the height. Yeah, that's right. The uh, <clears throat> In the time between this and since Captain Wild Woman, it's obvious at this point Universal figured out, okay, this is not going to be a leading man for us. You know, this is going to be yeah. the cop. This is going to be the detective. This is going to be the, the supporting character. And so they're less concerned with the height difference there. And so that's, it amused me through this film. There's times when he's taller than Evelyn Anchors and times when he's shorter than, than her. And, you know, <laughs> oh, shit, I didn't notice. Yes, yes. Next time you watch it, you'll notice that they don't always oh. have him. There's times when it's obvious he's on the st- stand on the stool or whatever, you know, or on the stand, you know, to <laughs> elevate. But then there's times. There's one time when she's, she purposely, you can tell, sits down on a lower sofa thing so that he can sit next to her and be taller. But some of the scenes where they're standing, they didn't quite, so they weren't quite as concerned since he wasn't playing the leading man, you know. With yeah. The, there's some height variations going on there. <laughs> man, man, man. Uh, uh, Charles McGraw and oh, Detective yeah. Garrity. Yeah. There's a familiar face to old movie fans, that's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, you might notice that I have skipped past uh, yes. one particular name, and that's because it's someone who we've talked about before and we'll, we'll talk about again. The great, the, ama- the amazing, mm-hmm. the unforgettable George, George Zuko. Zuko. Yeah. Now, uh, Mr. Zuko or Zuko, once again, again, again yes, I don't know where the Zuko. U goes. Yeah. But at the same time, he is always a pleasure. And I have to think that this role gave him a lot more to do than he normally gets to do in these mad science this, roles. This may be his best performance. I mean, not that I've seen all the mini Z and the movies he was in, but as far as ones that I think we've covered on this, you know, and the ones that I'm familiar with, yeah. I think this is one of the best performances he ever gave. And But a lot of it has to do with what he had to work with. He had good writing yeah. to work with. and Well, not only that, he has a character who isn't just a mad scientist yeah. who's, you know, the, the nuance in a mad scientist is usually trying to very slyly hide the fact that he's a mad scientist. Yeah, and then he's a race of Superman. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Whereas in this, he's hiding the fact that he's a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. He's romancing a woman mm-hmm. or thinks he's romancing yeah. a woman. Yeah. He then has uh, setbacks in his mad scientisting. Right, yes. Uh-huh. And has to scramble to try to mm-hmm. figure out how he's going to fix his screw mm-hmm. up in the mad science department. Mm-hmm. And then he has uh, a really fantastic scene where he has to convey, not to the character that he's talking to, but to convey to the audience that he's now absorbing the fact that he is not yeah, the yeah. object of affection of scene, Evelyn, yeah. Anchor's, yeah. Uh, Evelyn Anchor's character. And that he uh, now has to change up what he thinks is actually going on. Mm. And then there's a lot that happens in the third act with this character when the, the roles get reversed on him, where he where he, his, uh, his discovery gets turned on him mm. and he becomes frantic. And basically he gets to do a lot more in this yes. than he normally would in, in this type of horror role yeah. that he's usually assigned. Mm. And I think that uh, he does a fantastic job. Now, the thing is, you can look at his performances in... The horror movies alone, mm-hmm. and just really have a really good time. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You, he, he could sleepwalk his way through mm-hmm. the mummy sequels if he wanted to, mm-hmm. but he does. But he does as much yeah. as you can possibly right. do with what right. little he's given. Mm-hmm. But he's not walk, sleepwalking his way through all those other films that he made during that period of time. Because let's be honest, 
he made five movies just in the year he made yeah. this movie right. here. Right, yeah. And, you know, you can do that because you're not the lead. Yeah. And, you know, you're a hired gun to go in there and play uh, play a particular character in a larger production. And that's what he does. Mm. Uh, and so he's always good. And in the horror movies, there's a certain level that he was always required to reach. And he could do it probably mm-hmm. without without even mm-hmm. trying that hard. Mm-hmm. But this one, he's asked a bit more Mm-hmm. And he comes up to that task yeah. just as effectively as I would think that he would. It's it's it really is one of the pleasures of going back to rewatch this movie as many times as I have, just to watch his performance. He's yeah. really he's really great, and that's true of even of even some of the lesser films that he yeah. was that he was in in the horror field. But in this one, it's fun. It's really fun. You you don't have to to, to watch him play a character role in in a in a in a costume drama or a or a crime film made in the 40s or 50s, to see this guy really being a good actor. He's, yeah. He is quite good. So the joys of George Zuko are in front of us. Yep. All else can fall to the wayside if it must. Yeah. <laughs> Troy, how many times have you seen The Mad Ghoul in your life? Uh, Rough estimate. Probably about with the... Ro- not, not, not much. I can tell you that much right now. But... but um, Again, it was not one I saw when I was growing up. You know, I didn't probably see it until, you know, well yeah, into the yeah, video yeah. age, you know, and I always just heard of it, watched it, and then watched it, honestly, watched it not really just about a couple of years ago. I watched it again, rewatched hmm. it, and then a couple of times for, for our podcast. So, really, only about probably four times, maybe overall. So, not a lot. Uh, hmm. It's, yeah. So, okay. yeah. So, I going into it each time, it. I was, oh, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, I bought it on VHS mm. tape back mm. when the, they were putting them, when they put it out, mm. I think in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So, I watched that three or four times, probably, mm. just because it's not, you know, it, it's the it's the ones that you haven't seen to death. Yeah. That are, that, that you're, that you're watching and rewatching because now you have it. Now you right. can finally yeah. see it. Yeah. And I have now, of course, owned it on both DVD and now on Blu-ray. <laughs> right. And what can be said other than I love all I love all of these films and I, I enjoy returning to them, but uh, I've probably returned to this one. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've probably seen it seven times, mm-hmm. maybe eight. Cool. And one of the reasons is that it is a strange outlier in a lot of ways. It is not mm-hmm. part of a series. It's not part right. of a series. It is a standalone entity. It's uh, short, sharp, and to the point. Mm-hmm. It does what it wants to do very effectively. Yeah, there are a couple stumbles along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are some moments that I will point out as we go yeah. where the film kind of falls down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that can be attributed to the fact that they only had, I think, uh, two weeks, three yeah. weeks, something yeah. like that to make it. And so there, there's a certain lack of, uh, shall we say, attention to detail or... Putting the putting the cap back on the toothpaste tube in a couple of points, <laughs> where it feels like something kind of got missed, yeah. and we've just got to let it let it roll. But there's so much to enjoy in this movie. I don't end up really caring that much. Yeah. And um, once again, mad scientist film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does posit as its initial <laughs> jumping off point something that every time I've watched this movie, I mean, I'm, I'm always willing to go with it. I, I, I am because sure. okay okay just sure sure sure, 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 sure. sure. <clears throat> but to posit with a straight face at any point in time that the Mayans had a poison gas mm-hmm. 
that they used in their religious rites and that they weren't sacrificing people to their gods on those pyramids down in South America, South and Central America. Uh-huh. That's not what they were doing. No. What they were doing was extracting a heart because they needed a, a live heart to be able to resurrect the people that they were they were subjecting yes. to this poison gas. Yes. First of all, no. <laughs> Second, well, that's like three steps past what anybody would ever think to do at all. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what. Yes. I mean, you know. Yes. Okay, okay, but first of all, okay, let's just look at that. This is all the opening credits even, you know. Happens. Yeah. Okay, but see, I didn't pick up until the very last time when I was watching it. And when I was really paying attention to this whole, you know, to to this whole uh, opening, um, you know, lecture that George Zucco is giving. I thought, to I thought you were about to say bullshit. Fest. Yeah, well, that yes, bullshit lecture that George <laughs> Zucco is giving to his students. Uh, did now you just said it? You just said yourself. You said what we surmise. What you you filled in the blanks. You said Aztecs. He never says Aztecs. Oh no, he says Mayans. He doesn't say Mayans. He, no, no, I watched the time. He no, I watched again. You can watch it then. All he says is. Oh, Nati- really? He says natives. He says natives every time, and he says oh, wow. and he really? says temple. Those are the only words that he gives. Is he says natives. He says temple. This is universal land. This is some sort of uh, com- this oh. is some sort of composite. <laughs> but it's very clever what they do there because they never have to actually. They know us seeing those. You know, we're going to what you we're, we're going to think. Right, but they never say it, so it could be any native, you know, <laughs> tribe, you know, some sort of, you know, it's just oh, like wow, okay. So, so, but but the but the images that are that he's oh, yeah, projecting during the lecture are clearly Mayan, or mm. well, maybe you, Aztec. Yeah, I mean, see, yeah. you're saying you're filling in your 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 you're right, you're adding I am. your imagination, which is you know what you did with these great films. You add your imagination to the little bits they give you, but they're not. They don't. They kind of leave it open for us to, yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> that had not occurred to me, but you're right. I, uh, honestly, I would, and except for the fact that you have obviously done your homework, I would have sworn he said mine. I don't think so. I mean, someone yeah, can call me on it, but because I mean, last time around, I was because I was determined to, to like I'm going to pay attention to every detail, mainly just because I'm trying to figure out what the freaking benefit to mankind this this these scientific <laughs> experiments. Okay, yeah. And and he, you yeah. know, I was like, I was like, I watched it, I watched it three times, and I still have not figured out. What what, what what the purpose is of all this, other what? than the fact that I... He even says at one point, you know, I don't care about whatever right and wrong. I only care and about... that's a great line. And yeah. so it's literally just, you There's know... There's no right and wrong. Yeah. yeah. I just... He's doing it because he can, you know. I'm going to do all this. But the whole time, I'm thinking they usually try and throw out the sort of thing about, you know, think of what a, you know, benefit to mankind this will be. And I'm like, I'm not seeing it. So I'm really paying attention the last time through to try and kill you. Is there something I missed? And that's when I noticed he never says the location, the country, the people... It's all vague little phrases. See, see now I'm just now I'm just imagining the mad scientist trying to just trying to justify his uh, his 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 feline explosive sauce, which is, which is you you simply sprinkle it into an area and all cats explode, and they take they, they take their owners with them. There's just an explosion. It's like they turns them into turns them into nitroglycerin somehow, and it's wonderful. It's like this is in what what use would this have? This is how we will we will wipe out. The cat-loving populace of, you know, country X. It's like, well, I guess that's a, that's a long way around, sir. I mean, that's... <laughs> See, okay, so so let's just go and say, do you think that the poison gas thing was just a nod to wartime fears? Because there's no other mention of war or wartime in this wartime. Oh, yeah, there's But do you think maybe yeah. just the fears of kind of poison gas used in warfare is what they tried to use as kind of a stepping off 
point, like, I kept thinking Maybe. at some point they were going to say, then if, you know, in, in, in war, if our soldiers are gassed, we can find other soldiers to volunteer their hearts, you know, to, to bring their like, other no, dead no, soldiers. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're it's not. not happening. We're going to capture enemy soldiers and just take their hearts from them to bring our own soldiers back to life. Is that what you're going to do? I mean, I just don't. <laughs> yeah, I know, because as the film starts, he already has all of this knowledge. Mm-hmm. We, we're not starting the film and him figuring this out. Yeah, yeah. He starts the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knowing, oh no 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 no! Once I gas somebody, we have to murder somebody. We, yeah. Somebody has to be recently dead for us to actually bring that person that person back. Yeah yeah. Well, he even says, Zuko even says to Ted when he's recruiting Ted to you know be his assistant in there, and he's describing showing him yeah. what he's already done, and you know showing him he's done that with a monkey, and he says, he literally says like, imagine what it would mean if we could do this to a human being, and I'm like. Yeah, well, what do you mean? Tell I need us, you, doctor. I need, you, I need you to elaborate. <laughs> right. what, are the, what are the benefits? <laughs> Once again, what would this gain us? <laughs> and you see, there's a lot. You know, you're, you're ready to just sling the word cardiectomy around, but when it's yeah. a monkey, it's one thing. <laughs> when, it's, yeah. <laughs> when it's like carving the heart out of a recently, you know, deceased human being, it's like, well, I guess. Did you check his driver's license? Is he an organ donor? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the Monty Python skits coming to mind here. <laughs> yeah, very good. It's the machine that goes ping. Yeah, can we have your liver? <laughs> well, anyway, uh, our beloved George Zuko character, Doctor Alfred Morris, has come to the conclusion that the, uh, the the ritual of removing the hearts from living men was performed not to appease their gods, as was commonly believed, but to restore life to the gassed victims. His goal is to discover a method of reversing the action of the gas. So that's how the film starts. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. once again. Why were they gassing the victim? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. They, um, anyway. <laughs> well, uh, referring back to the Universal Horrors book, other than to satisfy his scientific curiosity, one is hard-pressed to come up with a good reason why the doc would devote his time and energy to such a purposeless pursuit. I agree. Yes. Considering the time period in which the Mad Ghouls made, it's surprising and even refreshing that the writers didn't think to utilize this novel gimmick as a potent new superweapon against the Axis powers. Much as Zuko had devised in the, uh, the, 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 the film The Mad Monster, which mm-hmm. is a, a, mm-hmm. a, a, a PCR... Was it, was it PCR? Was a, uh, I, just talked with the, I just talked with someone else about The Mad Monster recently, where in that film, the idea of turning combat soldiers into wolfmen with the aid of a secret formula <laughs> was kind of the, the, the bullshit mad scientist, <laughs> this is great for humanity kind of thing. <laughs> Here, uh, our, our Dr. Morris enlists the aid of uh, poor Ted Allison. Yes. And using a combination of crystals and ancient herbs, Morris gasses a monkey, then revives that animal successfully with a shot of heart Jocko, fluid Jocko. taken from another simian. Now, here's something where... Let's be clear. This film is more gruesome than yeah. I would have ever thought. Yeah, it goes for a pretty grim. Yeah. Forty-three film. This film gets away with things. Uh-oh. It's not like it's splashing blood across no. the screen. No. But there's some gruesome stuff in this, yep. and some surprising moments. There's a character that dies, is killed, mm-hmm. that is a comedic character, and it's kind of strange yeah. that they were they were willing to go there. Mm-hmm. I agree. But. What I still can't understand, and this is just a a technical question, something Mm. that I would like to have had a little bit more uh, detail on. (laughs) What are they doing to the heart? What are they getting out of the heart? Yeah, yeah. I mean, are they they throwing it in a blender, pureeing it? (laughs) Are they squeezing it? Like throwing that in there? I don't put it in a syringe and squeezing the plunger real hard. I I, I would like to... (sighs) 
I know they can't do it mm-hmm. first because it's the 1940s and there's only mm-hmm. so far they're going to be able to go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is a, there are a couple of places where this film did get banned oh. simply as it stands, okay. which is kind of, you know, mm-hmm. weird. But nevertheless, what were they getting from the heart? Mm-hmm. What, what, I mean, like I say, if they were put in an, I would, if, if, I would, I would, I would kill to have seen like a, a used, Dirty blender off to one side <laughs> in a corner or something. It's like, ah, 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 that's yeah. what they, okay. <laughs> or just like a big press where they, yeah, <laughs> where it's clear there's something leaking out of it. It's like, ah, they squeezed the heart until it gave up the juice that it needed. I don't know. <laughs> well, at any rate, that evening, Ted and his fiance, at least his fiance, he thinks, yeah, Isabel Lewis, played by Evelyn Ankers, drop in on Dr. Morris for a nightcap. This is where it gets interesting. Isabel, a concert singer, is about to embark on a multiple city tour, yet seems uncharacteristically disturbed. Now, the good doctor guesses the problem immediately. Mm-hmm. You're no longer in love with Ted. For some reason known only to him, the aging intellectual comes to the ridiculous conclusion mm-hmm. that the attractive young woman <clears throat> has fallen in love with him. Yeah. Now, yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I think is great is that, as ridiculous as that is... Mm-hmm. It does show. It's 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 one of the things in the movies that, the, in this particular movie that does demonstrate this guy's ego. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, what in what what has well, this woman said or done that could have possibly given him the idea that she looked yeah. upon him as a romantic interest? There's one thing, and I mean, this would be far again, far too much for him to go on, but it's a nice touch, and I did not notice it until my last watch through a little detail that I thought was very nice pulled off is when when she's over there with Ted and, and, and the doctor when they're over at his house uh, I believe the monkey you know makes the noise like she doesn't realize there's a monkey there yeah, you yeah, know yeah. and it startles her and she's standing between the two men and instead of grabbing the arm of her fiance Ted she grabs the arm of Dr. Morris oh yeah and and I think it's such and he then reaches up and kind of like pats her you know hand and I think that it shows two things, I think, very nicely. One, it's just showing that she is, as we're about to find out, you know, just shows how distant she's growing from Ted, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, but it also, I think, is kind of a thing that the doctor, things like that, that the doctor's kind of latching on to, to think that she's doing it attracting out of attracting him, him when yeah. instead it's more just kind of like he's more of the fatherly figure to her. And again, she's just very distant. Someone she can confide mm-hmm. in. But it's a neat that's little... Not, but that's not... Yeah, yeah but that's, the, that's yeah. not what he's thinking, but yeah. it's exactly what's going on. But it's a nice little yeah. visual touch that I... When I finally... You're right, I'm right. like, oh, that's cool. That's, that's a good little... As soon as you described that, I remembered exactly yeah. what you were talking about. That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. She didn't... Yeah. Yeah. And it's... And it's those kind of little physical things that mm-hmm. I, I'm assuming they were built into the script that really do... They add a little bit of detail there. Something that obviously that I hadn't picked up on consciously, but is there. And mm-hmm. I, as soon as you described it, I remember it exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, nice little piece. You're right. Yeah. Nice little thing. Um, I love the quote from him. It's only natural that you should turn mm-hmm. to an older man. Someone who knows the book of life and can <laughs> teach you to read it. Now, that, first of all... Good, that's good, First right. of all... I love the dialogue. That's great. Right. I do yeah. love that because that is, it's it's smooth. It's not overbearing. Mm. It's not ridiculous. Right. It doesn't overplay the character's hand. Mm. It is very much the kind of thing that someone with wisdom, the wisdom of his age, mm. about romances, romances, and uh, the the problems that can can be involved in extracting yourself from one relationship and, and entering into another. 
It's good dialogue and it works very effectively. And Zuko, once again, it's another one of those moments in the movie where it's clear this is a cut above what he's used to doing yeah. for quote unquote horror movies. Yeah. And he's quite good with I mean, that dialogue. He, he, yeah, he's, he delivers a lot of lines in this film really well. And I have to say, between our two reigning mad scientists, as much as I love Lionel Atwell, yeah. Zuko, I think, was better for this role than Atwell would have been because I think Atwell savors those syllables so much. You know, he's such a great. <laughs> I think he would probably leer a little too much. Yeah, and be, he would probably yeah. drip a little too much uh, on this uh, in he these would, scenes. Yeah. I think be, Zuko's more be, strained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because with Atwell, I think we would get an overtone at the very least, and possibly an overtone of lust. Yeah, yeah. But with Zuko. He's restrained, yeah. and so you never feel like he's some leering scumbag mm. who's you know right. no. who's chasing a younger woman. Mm. You get the feeling that he's someone who has somehow been led down the garden path in his own mind, yeah, yeah. and believes something that simply isn't mm. true. Mm. And I think that you're right. I mean, there would be the the feeling of. Uh, a slightly distasteful feeling of uh, of, mm. a, of a leering mm. old man lusting after a child. Yeah, and John Carradine is, probably would have brought that too. Would probably also John Carradine could have done it too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so he's he's perfect here. Yeah, he is. he's he really perfect, is. and the dialogue is. Let's be clear. I think the dialogue is a little better than it has to be some of the time. It is. It is. That's why I was talking about the surprisingly adult some of our writing in this film, you know, yeah. that, uh, you know, more so than the way it deals with relationships. It really makes all the relationships I know. very believable. There was a point in the film, and we'll talk more about it later when we started to get to Eric, the character, returning Bay's character and all that. But there's there's parts of the film where I thought if you remove the the grim and, the, you know, the mad scientist aspect out of the story, you could almost have a really actually good drama about a human, about a triangle, like a human yeah, love triangle yeah. here. Well, it's know. almost a, it's almost a, a square because well, you have true. four characters. Because you have three men in, in true, love yeah. with one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it, and it's, it has its tragic nature. There's mm. no way around that. Mm. But the, the horror elements are the ones that are, they're the ones selling the tickets. But yeah, yeah, yeah. you're right. You could extract those elements and yeah. it'd still be a pretty well, Pretty well done and interesting little story. Of course, it would be about 40 minutes long. True, yes. <laughs> but nevertheless, could still be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, in the context of what we know about their relationship at this point, uh, the assumption that the doctor has made is, of course, preposterous. Isabel is understandably oblivious to the doctor's <laughs> attentions, mistaking the mistaking his moves on her for you know simple fatherly concern. And I think that, once again, speaks to the restrained, mature approach he is taking to this entire situation yeah, yeah. Uh, whether it is to not overplay his hand in front of ted or mm-hmm. because that is simply in the character's nature mm-hmm. uh, because let's be honest the only crazy stupid crazy fucking thing that we see from him is this yeah. psychotic yeah. desire <laughs> to, uh-huh. to to uh-huh. use this gas he's discovered <laughs> on human beings yeah. <laughs> you're one step over the line there buddy you need to back off and get back right. to your primates. The lower primates. Yes, yes. The ones what don't have driver's license. You know, you know with right. the organ donor thing on them, remember? Uh, yes. Well, Ted is easy prey for the death trap that Morris sets for him. Falling under the influence of the vapor from the uh, mm. ancient Aztec Mayan mm. native gas. Natives, yeah. uh, the, the young surgeon becomes an emaciated automaton. And this is where we get to the ghoul part. Mm-hmm. Now, I love this. There's this little side where they talk about how Jack Pierce uh, didn't have much to go on when he was ordered to create David Bruce's mm-hmm. makeup. He says, all they told me was they wanted Bruce to look like a reasonably fresh cadaver. <laughs> how fresh? They said a couple or three weeks buried. 
This was not much to go on, but I did my best. They seem satisfied. <laughs> the uh, makeup procedure was pretty much exactly the kind of thing that he did on Boris Karloff for yeah. The Mummy. Yeah. Which was to uh, uh, essentially uh, give him a wizened, wrinkled mm. look, mm. Uh, make his eyes look like they, uh, had, they had regressed into his skull a good bit. Um, but as the movie uh, proceeds and the, the, the degenerative effect of the gas reaches an advanced stage, his features become more and more parchment-like, kind of resembling a corpse in uh, the first stages of uh, uh, decomposition. So he gets more and more awful looking as they realize that any kind of real strong emotional outburst or any kind of serious emotional upset will cause him to once again revert to the ghoulish state. Uh, very, very interesting this, because I don't think the movie spends very much time slash much at all on the fact that what they really need is a way to cure him from these relapses yes. as opposed to more hearts ripped out of people so that they can, you know, yeah. put it in a blender and have him slurp it down. Yeah, because, yeah, you wonder, like, is this just an eternal? I mean, how many how many bodies are going to pile up to keep this, you know, do you have to keep this guy going? Is, you know. is this an infinite mm-hmm. regression? Is this mm-hmm. just the way it's going to be? I thought Jack Pierce's makeup kind of grows on me grew on me the more I saw it and, and also I think that that's I think the Blu-ray I think the digital high def yeah. you know I think that that brings out the makeup in this case sometimes as we've talked about before in some movies it bring it out too much that you see the flaws in this case I think it kind of enhances makes me appreciate it a little more what he did you know yeah, with yeah. the makeup you know because he didn't go overboard with it he didn't have a no. whole lot of time or money to work with it he just kind of gave him what he thought they wanted and, and on first time viewing I thought it was pretty bland overall the makeup like not all that interesting you know but now the more I've watched it especially being able to see more of the details of it I'm like no I think he is actually it's, it, I like it more now the, the makeup job he did I think I've always appreciated it to a degree because it doesn't it doesn't look completely like anything else from mm-hmm. this period for Universal mm-hmm. yeah and therefore it, this being a solo film it mm-hmm. kind of fits that it doesn't mm-hmm. really look like anything else there you know yeah. it's the closest you could come to is that you know that, that wrinkly flesh effect that you get from the, the mummies and that's mm-hmm. about it yeah but I do think it's funny. There's this wonderful quote from uh, from Bruce describing his uh, what he looked like. So we're watching a black and white film, yeah. and remember there are certain effects that you get shooting in black and white, yeah. which causes which which causes them to kind of be free ranging with the color because of the way it'll shade in oh, black yeah. and white. Yeah. He says my makeup was green, uh-huh. and it made my hair look red, <laughs> bright red. Yeah. They tinted me green and combed my hair over my eyes, and for the later thing, they put the false skin on, which was absolute murder. I wore it for three days, and the third time I took it off, my skin was bleeding because you had to peel the makeup off. They put on spirit gum and then a layer of cotton and then another layer of gum, so this created an entirely false face on top of mine. Then they'd wrinkle it up, and the wrinkles would stay in. There's a a story story that uh, they relate later on from David Bruce's daughter about that makeup which I think is kind of funny yeah his daughter uh, Amanda McBroom who uh, was a stage film and TV actress as well when when she became an adult she recalled her dad talking about this she said he had so much fun on that film I remember him telling me that uh, I remember him telling about coming home from the studio we lived on the poor end of Toluca Lake where the ducks were as opposed to the rich end of the lake where Bob Hope lived the one time he came up, uh, came home for, for lunch in full mad ghoul makeup. Well, he walked in behind my mother, and she saw his face in the mirror, and he scared her so terribly that she passed out in the bathroom. 
that was a very serious makeup. And that was back in the days before they knew how to protect somebody's face. Your face was bare, and they just did what they did to it. He had a lot of fun with it. He really liked George Zuko a lot. They became quite good friends, and he loved Evelyn Anchors. They were great pals. He called her Moo. Don't ask why. <laughs> the Mad Ghoul was evidently a very pleasant experience for him. He really enjoyed it. But I love the fact that it, it that his, his hair was red, bright red. <laughs> But, of course, you do that to get, like I said, yeah. different shades of gray yeah, sure, yeah. in black and white film. Yeah. And it's one of those oddities of this <laughs> where <laughs> if you ever do see color photographs taken on the sets of mm. a film that was, that yeah. you only know f- because it was yeah. shot in black and white, mm. it can kind of be a little jarring. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. To yeah. get a look at, oh, wow, shit, that's what they look like. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> that's really weird. I didn't, you know, it, it could be something as simple as, oh, it was a blue suit? He's wearing a yeah, blue right. suit? Yeah, yeah. That's not what I thought no. he was wearing. No. All the way up to, okay, that's not a real hair color. Yeah. Where is that? What is that? <laughs> it's alive. Yes. That's what I meant in my lecture by life in death. How did you bring the state about, Doctor? You know, I told you that I had recreated the native formula. Here it is. That's innocent looking stuff. I must warn you about that. These crystals and the gas they give off are colorless and odorless, therefore the more deadly. If you have occasion to work with this innocent-looking stuff, at all times wear this mask. Apparently the little monkey here forgot his. Yes, when I exposed Jocko to the gas, he too thought it was innocent-looking stuff. But its effect on him was almost instantaneous. Physical changes took place within a few minutes. What sort of changes, Doctor? First, there was an appearance of emaciation, followed by more marked physical changes, and then by paralysis of the will. This condition inevitably will terminate in death. Then you plan to conclude your experiments by allowing this animal to enter that terminal stage? No, Ted. That's why you are here. Me? We together are going to reverse the action of the gas. You saw those slides this afternoon. One showed them cutting the hearts from living victims, supposedly one of their pagan rites. In my research, however, I deduce that this custom it was not to appease their gods, as they would have you believe, but to restore life to the guest victims. Combined with certain herbs, the hearts taken from the newly dead served that purpose. I have the herbs. There is the heart. You mean, you want me to perform a cardiacomy? You sound reluctant. You're not squeamish about the surgery? I've performed too many dissections to be squeamish, Doctor. Good. At this point, Ted is entirely in the doctor's control, mm-hmm. and Morse plants in the young man's subconscious mind the notion that Isabel no longer wants him and ha- hands Ted a scalpel. Morris escorts him to the town cemetery, orders him to despoil the grave of a recently interred businessman, and then perform a cardiectomy on the corpse. The hard substance is used by Morris to bring Ted out of his terminal state and the student is entirely oblivious to the entire ordeal that he's gone through. Now, two things real quick. One, I love when Ted is first being, the whole scene where Ted's being gassed, I, I, that Zucco playing the piano over yes. it, that's a great touch. That's a, just yeah. a really cool scene. Um, that's a great scene. And then also, uh, I just from the very first time I saw this film, I thought the idea of, of that that was a pretty nice, the idea of a zombie who's also performing skillful surgery while zombified i thought no that's that's pretty new that's pretty good <laughs> yeah it's like we would we wouldn't get to that until day of the dead in 85 yeah, yeah right yeah in, exactly in, in romero zombie land so pretty cool yeah well um 
When the doctor's miracle monkey has a sudden relapse, mm-hmm. Morris realizes the fatal consequences of his act. In other words, oh hell, yeah, <laughs> this gas is going to kill you if I don't keep shoving heart juice down your throat. One of my favorite Zucco deliveries of just a one single syllable is the way that scene ends where, you know, where we're poor, you know, naive Ted, you know, he says, looks down and says, like, poor little Jocko. And, and you know, Zucco just goes, looks at Jocko and goes, yes. You know, because <laughs> you tell the whole time he's thinking like, yes, and you are fucked, my boy. You know, so it's, you are. You know. How am I ever going to fix this? Yes, but his, his just delivery that one syllable is just like perfect. <laughs> oh, he, he's He's amazing in this. Yes. Well, an emotional confrontation with Isabel during one of her concert tour stops takes its toll on Ted's fragile condition. Once again, this emotional upset reverts him back to a zombified state without the benefit of the exposure to the gas. And this is really when <laughs> the doctor realizes, oh, God, <sighs> yeah. oh, we're in, we're in a land of bad trouble here. This mm. is not good. Yeah. This time, the pair visit the local cemetery where they where they are on this this mm-hmm. city out this town outside of where they mm-hmm. normally live. Oh, oh, and, oh! I meant to I meant to make note of the uh, the incredibly generic Middle American names of all of the towns. Oh, I didn't even think that, about that. Oh my God! They could not be more Springfield if they tried. <laughs> Centerville and things like that. Yes. basically, like I didn't even notice that. That's funny. All of them. There's. They, they're giving you nothing to latch on to as to like what state this there is happening in, See, back in yeah, or right. even what portion of the country. This could be Ohio. <laughs> this could be New York State. This could be New Jersey. This mm. could be Virginia. We we don't know. Yeah. Probably Pennsylvania. Who knows? It could be Pennsylvania. But <laughs> nevertheless, so uh, the Morris is forced to kill a caretaker. They're, they're going after just a recently deceased uh, person there in the there in the old, the old uh, corpse farm. But this caretaker caretaker finds him and comes after him, and uh, so they. Uh, they off him, and they just decide to use his heart to restore mm. Ted to temporary normalcy. Yeah. Now, at this point, your average horror movie fan is going to be the one that's just going to put up his put up his hand yeah. in the audience yeah. and go, "You fuckers are on the clock now. Yeah, you, you you're done. Yeah, it's just a matter of when yeah. the cops figure this out. Yes. So what's going to happen now? Mm-hmm. Well. Unable to conceal her secret any longer, Isabel unburdens herself to the to an understandably mortified Dr. Morris. And this, is this I love this scene. Mm. It seems that another man is occupying yeah. his corner of the triangle that yeah. <laughs> he thought was uh, his yes. place. Yes. Isabel's handsome accompanist, accompanist is the, the pianist, mm-hmm. Eric Iverson, <clears throat> played by Turin Bay, is <clears throat> the object of her affections. Uh-huh. Now saddled with two rivals, the desperate doctor drives Ted into having another seizure, then orders him to make arrangements to meet Eric later that night after mm-hmm. the concert. Mm-hmm. I'll kill both these bastards, yeah. and then I'll be there to comfort the poor woman who will fall into my bed crotch place. Crotch <laughs> place. I will comfort her. At the stroke of midnight, Ted, loaded pistol in hand, silently approaches Iverson as he paces the deserted alleyway that they've agreed to meet in behind the concert hall. Hans J. Salter's pounding score builds to a dramatic crescendo as Ted's menacing shadow closes in on his best friend. But before the ghoul can pull the trigger, Isabel arrives on the scene and upsets his pre-programmed command with a piercing scream. Unseen by the couple, Ted escapes to Morris's waiting car. This is the scene in the movie where I go, what the hell happened here? Yes, that is a very awkward yeah. sort of scene. The whole yeah. thing is, yes. It feels like something didn't get shot yes. or that they thought they were communicating something about this encounter 
that they weren't allowed to show yeah. or thought they were demonstrating in some I way. Because it's so like one of the most awkward things it seems to me is that that big like wail that even the anchor even yeah. the anchors lets out this big scream. She says, uh, you know, what's happened is she's seeing his shadow, and all, but it never right. shows her seeing his shadow and reacting to it. So no. you feel like she's screaming about nothing, you know, because you don't realize until she finally, after a minute, says that shadow and kind of refers to it. And you're like, okay, I guess that's what she I saw. But it's a it really is. strange, yeah, it's just the editing on it and everything. It just feels like a throwaway, like a throwaway scene almost, which should have been like the height of one of the best suspenseful parts there. It almost seems like a, you know, just like an afterthought. like a. I agree, I agree. Yeah. It's, it's, one of the few moments in the film where I feel like there's some, there's some falling down in the storytelling, mm-hmm. where there seems to be something missing, mm-hmm. and it, it it's a stumble. It doesn't make the film fall down for me, no. but it is a stumble yeah. because it just there's it's obvious like it, all it would have taken mm-hmm. was just a, a single insert shot mm-hmm. of her seeing the shadow or of something happening. That caused her to realize that uh, the man she loves is in danger. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But of course, the the trick of it is, is that she's got to, she's got to make this murder not happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But she also can't be allowed to see who is causing the danger to her yep. to love. Right. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if they shot it a certain way and then realized, well, the audience isn't going to believe that she didn't see who yeah. it was. Maybe. Yeah. So. It just makes it it makes it awkward. It seems like they really needed to kind of figure out a way to shoot this sequence in a way mm-hmm. to communicate what they get what what happens by the end of the scene, which is it's a failure. Mm-hmm. But they needed to communicate it in a way that didn't make it feel like uh there's like a gap here. There's yeah. a, there's a there's a strange yeah. little gap. Yeah, I agree. But that's small that's small enough thing for me to overlook mm-hmm. considering what I enjoy about the film. Yeah. Well. Acting on a hot tip provided by a colleague, Ace reporter Ken McClure, that would be our Robert Armstrong, a.k.a. Carl Denham, (laughs) he's been chasing this little ghoul story. uh, These couple of deaths, or, well, single death, and strangely enough, corpse defiling. Yeah. That's been happening. And he has a hunch that there's a connection between the graveyard atrocities and Isabel's concert appearances, because he compares notes with a, uh, another uh, reporter, a woman who uh, he, he's obviously interested in, who reports on the goings and comings of the various musicians and entertainers in the area, and she is following the entertainer that is Isabel mm-hmm. from city to city, and it's at that point that he realizes, wait a minute, yeah. these incidents have happened in the cities that she's mm-hmm. been presenting a concert in. I like the fact that it amuses me, and I wonder if it was sort of meant to be amusing or part of the comic aspect of his role is the fact that the female reporter, played by Rose Hobart, actually yeah. drops that clue to him really early on in the film. But he doesn't pick it up. And, it, and then it's much later in the film when she brings it up again and literally has to, you know, he literally has to be pounded over the head with it before it finally yeah. dawns, even though it's dawned on the audience way much earlier, you know, or like going like, like come, come on, on, put dude. this together. I think it might have been an actually intentionally funny or kind of amusing thing that they string it on so long before he finally realizes what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious Maybe. clues. <laughs> but nevertheless, he, uh, he he thinks he's got something going on here, so he's, he realizes, okay, wait a minute. This is the town where she's giving a concert tonight. So he plants a phony obituary in the local paper of the town that she's going to appear in next. And then he sets what he thinks is going to be a great trap for the killer. He positions himself inside a coffin in the funeral parlor and waits for the murderer to arrive. 
This is where McClure makes a fatal blunder, and the character who has been a pretty pleasant addition to this film exits the story mm-hmm. in a very interesting scene. Yeah. I yeah. do really like the way George Zuko delivers his lines in this scene. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. seems to have been greatly exaggerated. That's too bad. We counted on performing this cardiectomy with a minimum of effort. Well, I'm delighted to disappoint you. Now, if you'll just turn around... You don't seem to understand. This is important to me. More so to my friend behind you. Oh, no, you don't. All right, Ted. We're ready. Why don't you stop? Why, that gag's got whiskers. So exit our uh, comedic a- uh, reporter, yeah. uh, which is not exactly what you expect. I mean, he I ends up he ends up grist for the mm-hmm. for the ghoul mill here. Yeah, he gets his heart ripped out and used to yeah. uh, revivify poor old Ted again. I mean, what you don't see is is more effective than what I mean. Even you know, much more than Ed they've shown it. I'm sure you know, just the reaching over, they you know that they just rendered him helpless, and they're about to carve out his heart, and you uh-huh. know, and, and uh, I'm sure for audiences at the time that probably was a pretty jolting, unexpected. And I think scene. that may be one of the one of the things that got the film um, banned a couple Maybe. of places because I mean clearly Ted's zombified self shoves that scalpel into his neck. Yeah. But yeah. of course it's done in such a way that yeah. you can't really object to it in 1943 unless you're really hardcore right. about yeah. about what you can and can't show. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the next thing we know, they're talking about the fact that McClure's hunch was uh, mm-hmm. on target and it uh, mm-hmm. cost him yeah. his life. I will say too, but before that that scene, there's one of my favorite com- comedic lines from the film is from delivered from the the Undertaker, who is you know who's who's <laughs> who's led him in there, and yeah. the last thing he says to uh, Robert Armstrong before he 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 leaves him alone in the coffin, you know he he says now whatever you do, and you think he's gonna say something cautionary to him, he says don't mar the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty yeah. good. Don't damage this thing. <laughs> yeah, I like that. this is this unlike you's worth money. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Well, convinced that McClure's hunch was on target, you think? Yeah. Uh, Sergeant Macklin and his partner pay Isabel a visit on the eve of her last concert appearance. They suspect that Eric, the pianist, mm. might be their man. But, of course, and we told you about spoilers beforehand, folks. Yes. Isabel, of course, confides in Ted at the, the, at, the, at the accusations and her tearful admission of love for Eric and full disclosure of the evidence presented to her against Eric puts everything in perspective for Ted. And he has this moment where he says, what am I, alive or dead? Man or beast? What have you done to me? He beseeches the, uh, the dear doctor. Getting hold of himself, Ted plans a real revenge. He writes a suicide note, 
prepares a mixture of the deadly gas, and lures Morris into the lab. Now, of course, I love the fact that the first thing we learn about this gas at the beginning of the film is that it is odorless and colorless, mm -hmm. which means that we do know now yeah. this is going to come into play. Yes, 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 it is. <laughs> he lures Morris into the lab. Suddenly seized by the effects of the gas, Ted becomes Morris's blindly obedient slave once more. Morris hands him a revolver and orders him to kill Eric and then kill himself. And so Ted, the zombie, marches his ass on mm -hmm. off to the concert mm -hmm. hall. Mm -hmm. To his horror, Morris then realizes that he too has been exposed to the gas. Seizing the surgeon's scalpel, he implores Ted to help him, but it is too late. And I really love the scene where he where he's like backing down the staircase in front of him, trying to I get him just, to do what he's telling him to do. It is great, yeah. And he's just going. He can't by stop that, this you know, relentless can't, machine yeah. he's created. Yeah, you know, yeah. So yeah. Uh, but his initial command has already been programmed into the into the poor zombie's mind. Ted blunders onto the stage as Isabel is in mid-performance and aims the gun at Eric. But before he can fire, the mad ghoul is cut down by Macklin's bullets. Hmm. Now, in a, in a scene that I'm honestly shocked was not cut out of the movie, we then see Dr. Morris, his features distorted, attempting to dig up a grave to obtain a heart for himself... Yeah. And he collapses and dies, scalpel still in hand. Yeah. Now, friends, neighbors, countrymen, mm -hmm. them some dark doings for yeah. 1943. Yeah, yeah. A little more mature, a little more mm -hmm. grim yeah. than you would have expected from a film of this vintage. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's kind of great. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah. I, I, every time I go back to this, I forget the, about the, the darker stuff in it for some reason. Yeah. Like, I forget that the comedic character exits violently. Mm -hmm. And I, I forget about that final scene where I can understand the argument that the way Ted's zombified self meets his end on that mm -hmm. stage mm -hmm. is directed kind of flatly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the ways in which I could imagine it could have been shot to make it seem less of an anticlimax... Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they would. It would have taken time. It would have taken. It would have taken some yeah. things that I'm not sure that they necessarily would have been able mm. to do. Yeah. But the but honestly, the real climax is not the poor victim Ted being gunned yeah. down by right. the cops. The real climax is the man who instigated all of this yeah. pain and horror, clutching at a grave and dying mm. on it. Yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, I think it's a very powerful ending. It really yeah. is. You know, it, it definitely is. Um, I think this is a great line here in this book. It says, There's no shortage of carnage, either visually or implied, in the mad ghoul, and yet the film manages to stay within the guidelines of accepted standards for the period in which it was made. Mm. Now, that's true, yeah. but it is still a really morbid movie. Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is a movie that is dark, and that may be one of the reasons why I have returned to it as frequently mm. as I have. I've never mm -hmm. really examined yeah. why I have returned to this film again and again and again, other than it being the fact that it is a, it is a solitary Entity within mm. this string of films. <clears throat> yeah, it's not got uh, it's not got a sequel. It's not got a sequel, obviously. Uh, although they did talk about possibility. Yes, can I go ahead and yeah, get on yeah, that yeah, because that's that. it says yeah. This just just the mind reels when you read, when you when you when you read about this. Yes, there was a planned sequel to this film. It was going to be called Chamber of Horrors. It was going to now get this, folks. It was going to feature the Wolfman, the Monster, Dracula, the Mummy. 
the Invisible Man and the Mad Ghoul. I mean, can you imagine? I just, it's like, now obviously this is kind of what probably was the beginnings of House of Frankenstein. Yeah. But timing being everything, you have to wonder, you know, you look at all those monsters, or most of them, except for the Invisible Man and Mad Ghoul, they had just most, they had almost recently been played by one man, Lon Chaney Jr. Right. Now you would have to assume he would be playing the Wolfman, so would this have been... The beginning of Glenn Strange and John Carradine as those characters, or would it have been other people? Because again, you just you know, like the timing know, is yeah. all that you know. So would we have seen? But uh, but that's that's that would have been a really interesting film, though. We've already talked about the fact that this is a pretty unique film in this series of Universal horror films made mm-hmm. in the nineteen forties, mm-hmm. and it stands out in a number of different ways. And you wonder to a degree why what makes it stand out so much and i think one of the things is just its genesis in the first place one mm, mm. the original story not the screenplay itself mm. was written by uh, someone who was better known earlier in his career in the late 20s all the way up through the early 30s of working with Ernest Lubitsch mm. the uh, screenwriter uh, Hans Kraley it's really kind of the only horror thing he ever did okay. he was much better known for other things like um, well he received an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Story for the Deanna Durbin film 100 Men and a Girl in 1937. Hmm. So he's more in line with that kind of stuff. And when he realizes that he worked with Ernest Lubitsch before they yeah. had a major falling out and never worked with each other again, hmm. um, there is the there is a film from uh, the silent era that he worked on that could point you toward him having some kind of affinity for this. It's a film from 1918 called The Eyes of Mummy Ma, which... Interesting. It was it was a film he made with Ernest Lubitsch, mm-hmm. okay. in which Emil Jan- Jannings uh, plays a murderous caretaker of the tombs who schemes to frighten tourists away from the sacred sites. Okay, but perhaps uh, this this is I'm I'm quoting from the uh, the 40s Universal Monsters book, uh, the the critical commentary book. Uh, perhaps Crayley had been thinking of his native Germany wherein an evil genius was then hypnotizing young men to commit murder and to march mindlessly to their mm-hmm. doom. Mm-hmm. More likely, Crayley had recalled the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, yeah. And its sinister doctor, who sent out his knife-wielding somnambulist slave, Cesar, in search of victims. In light of this, it was probably not coincidental that David Bruce's makeup as the Mad Ghoul was not unlike that of Conrad Veidt's as Cesar. I had not thought of any of those things. That's mm-hmm. nice. I like that. Um, an article on the film in Missouri's Hattiesburg American, June 10th, 1943, mentions Crayley's past connection with Lubitsch and quotes Crayley as saying, mm. sophisticated comedy used to shock moviegoers. Now I find that in order to shock them, you have got to give them the horrors. I am fighting even my, I am frightening even myself. <laughs> now I think that that sounds like uh, PRBS <laughs> because it just doesn't sound like something that uh, mm. someone of Crayley's stature would probably say, but at the same time, he's writing a story that's being turned into the mad ghoul at this point. Yeah. So yeah. who knows? Well, the the film itself mm. is um, it's pretty darn well done, and, and uh, the director is not somebody we've ever turned up again. Uh, we've not turned up before, and we won't turn up again. Right, sure. Um, uh, his his name his name was uh, uh, Hogan. Uh, yeah, James Hogan, who uh, did a number of films over the years. Uh, a lot of stuff that. Uh, well, it, it's interesting. He made a lot of different types of films, yeah. and he was certainly a competent director. But what I'm turned toward is that he he turned he turned in he, he made um, bulldog drumming movies and Ellery, Ellery Queen stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Basically, he was kind of a uh, a B movie director for a long period of time, and that's how he ended up doing stuff like this. 
But he mostly did do straight crime films like Queen of the Mob, and then there's this, which does seem kind of like a strange combination of certain elements. Mm -hmm. This, unfortunately, was the last movie he made. Yeah, yeah. It was announced that Hogan, after this, uh, after this film, he'd been signed to do a long to a long term contract as the producer and director. Uh, but on the fifth of November, Hogan suffered a heart attack at his home. The responding paramedics had just finished spending a futile hour attempting to revive Lou Costello's baby, yeah. who had drowned. Mm. They had no better luck with Hogan, and the Mad Ghoul was released just a week later. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's very strange. Yeah, but yeah. the movie had a very tight shooting schedule. Uh, started on May the 13th and ended about two weeks later, maybe a day over that. And a budget that is much less than the one they had for Son of Dracula, which it was built as a co-feature for. Right. Larger question. Mm-hmm. If what we see in the movie indicates that what happens is that once Ted has been affected by this gas, any real emotional shock sends him back into that state mm-hmm. that the gas puts him in. It's almost as if it causes him some kind of stroke, yeah. some kind of bizarre brain mm-hmm. aneurysm, some some effect mm-hmm. that causes him to regress into a less conscious state. Mm-hmm. And it's strange to me how it resembles, in broad terms, a kind of re- retreat away from the emotions that he has to have been picking up from mm-hmm. his supposed fiancé, for some time before the movie even begins. Because it's clear that everybody else around him knows that something's wrong with this relationship. This woman is not acting the way that she would if she was really still invested in the relationship. Well, the key is, I think, key scene in that, which you're getting at, is, is when she finally does openly confess it to him, his reaction is not shock or outrage at her. It's more just the realization kind of that she's confirming... What well, on some level he's already known anyway. His but horror not, is more. But not been real, willing to say. Yeah, his yeah. horror is more what realizing what he's you know realizing that what really what he's done you yeah. know, um, yeah yeah that 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 is a good point. That is a good point. I think that I think that uh, yeah, and, and obviously that's a totally unforeseen for the doctor too. That's a totally unforeseen effect of this stuff yeah. he's been messing with. This whole thing of that distress is going to send. Is going to send him into and become this creature, you know. So yeah, he's going this to have to this thing, yeah. this yeah. not living but not dead, you know, kind yeah. of in between state, yeah. where he is, you know, incredibly pliable. Uh, and, mm. and see, that's the thing. Why? Right. Why is it never? It's such an obvious thing. The fact that he is so in, he can be so easily influenced once he's under this mm. under this gas yeah. seems to me that would be the thing that would occur to someone. Uh, in wartime as a way to influence kind of an unstoppable horde of, of yeah. fearless mm-hmm. soldiers, people who mm-hmm. are, not, are not going to be concerned for their own well-being, mm-hmm. and therefore will march tirelessly into the oncoming guns and mm-hmm. just take whatever punishment is necessary to win the day. But I think even aspects of it still that are, that Dr. Morris doesn't really see comes, I think it's very erratic how it works and maybe as it goes on the influence becomes stronger but you yeah. know from the very first he's putting him on the gas and he's telling him you will forget Isabel well he certainly doesn't he no, remains just yeah. as obsessed with 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 yep. Isabel you know and uh, uh, and in fact I don't think that Morris anticipated that he would have what he thinks are dreams but he's having that even while he's under he re- he does remember images that he thinks for a long time are dreams you know but but they continue to work on him and and, and cause him to doubt kind of slowly realizing what 
that that something's really really wrong with with what's going on with him and again i think that's something that he doesn't morris didn't plan for you know that he's actually going to retain images from what he's done yeah yeah and, and that, that's going to start to bleed over yeah and start to change the way he thinks about what he's doing and change the way he acts as a person yeah and so it's it's fascinating uh, i would like to point out one other thing the the film once again we've talked in the past about how lucky we are that these movies made in the 40s the, we have because they're they're less old than the mm-hmm. films of the 30s, mm-hmm. and they've been uh, they've been uh, better preserved to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. We now have in the HD world just luminous, beautiful prints oh, yeah. of these things. Oh, they yeah. look fantastic, mm-hmm. and um, I'd just like to point out that the uh, the film looks really great, and that mm-hmm. I'm really impressed. We get some some great you know typical 40s shadow play stuff mm-hmm. in the movie. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. There's some creepy, some really creepy atmospheric stuff in cemeteries, mm. uh, in several sequences, and it's just a beautifully shot movie. And being made in the '40s and being better preserved than some other movies, it's amazing to be able to see the amount of detail that we get in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just like to to laud uh, Milton uh, Milton Krasner, the cinematographer, yeah. who uh, uh, famously shot a lot of really great movies. He won an Oscar in 1954. For three coins on a fountain, but he also shot movies like uh, The Setup, mm-hmm. uh, All About Eve, yeah. uh, the The Dark Mirror, and uh, his last film, the last film that he ever shot was Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Oh wow! Well, so uh, you know, yeah, good way to near, get out. near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Anybody anybody yeah. who could work on both All About Eve and Beneath the Planet of the yeah, Apes, that's really, yeah, that's them's my people. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the the beautiful the beautiful film, the 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 luminous black and white, mm. the um. You know, they got away with what they could get away with, and they, except for that one very, you know, we, we talked about the stumble. Yeah, the, the weird stumble, alley scene. The weird alley sequence. Yeah, yeah. Where the movie does not seem to communicate clearly what it's attempting to tell us. Right. Uh, that's really the only downside I had to this one. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's uh, an intriguing film. It's one that I do, obviously, enjoy going back to, considering I've seen it, you know, mm-hmm. probably less than 10 times in my life, but. Mm-hmm. Probably pretty close to ten times. Yeah. If I'm going to, well, be I definitely honest. definitely see myself watching it more as the years goes on. I can definitely see myself watching it, you know, just for pleasure. You know, returning to to just you know throw in from time to time and check out again. Well, I mean, I've heard some people complain that the first half of the film is a little too talky, but I've never felt that way. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't either. I really don't. And the uh, the the film, like I say, it doesn't overstay its welcome, and it's no. and it's. It's it's always and it's always interesting every time I return to it. It's not one that I'm going to watch, you know, twice a year, but it is one that every couple yeah. of years I yeah, get the I urge I want to too. pull it back out and check it out again. Zuko's great in it. He um, is awesome. There's a great quote here from the uh, Universal Monsters book where he, where he says uh, Zuko tempers his stock villain mad scientist with an affecting vulnerability. Uh, discovering the antidote is effective only temporarily. He earnestly warns Bruce of the dire, of this dire situation without revealing to his victim what he's done to him. Ted, we've got to find a permanent cure. Um, that 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 his delivery of that line is something yeah. we didn't we didn't single out, but it's yeah. another one of those moments where it's it's communicating much more to the audience yeah. than it's communicating to the character within the story, mm-hmm. and yet. The, the frenzied nature of the like I say you can start to hear that clock tick in the background because it's like okay now we really are up against something yeah there. yeah um 
on the scale of one to ten, what do you feel? What do, what do you end up yeah. kind of giving this movie? Yeah, I gave it a uh, I gave it a seven. You know, really? Seven. Okay. Yeah, but really, yeah, I did. I mean, I think a couple of things I want to say about it. I think um, when I compare it to the <clears throat> the other Mad Doctor films that we've done in this series, yeah. <clears throat> the '40s Universal Mad Doctor stuff, I think it's better than Mad Doctor Market Street. I think, yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's better than Captive Wild Woman. I yeah. think it's better than The Strange Case of Dr. Rx. And I think it's as good, at least, as Man-Made Monster. I'd say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I really, yeah, I like it. Um, again, getting back to the intelligence of the writing and the way the characters are handled, is I actually think that <clears throat> you understand and feel sympathy for all of them. Certainly all the three, the, the young, you know, leads romantic. Yes. But I think there's even a moment where you can feel a little sympathy for Zuko in the, in the scene because he plays it so well. And so... You know the fact that he doesn't overplay the when she when he realizes that Isabel is not in love with him that she's in love with Eric he he actually kind of part of him you're sort of realizing that he's realizing he has been kind of an idiot you know I mean he's been kind of, where he's, yeah. he basically says we he says he says we all see what we see and you can see it in his eyes he's realizing we see, oh, we see what we want to see yeah. he says I've really been I've really been deceiving myself all this time now it doesn't stop him from going off on his mad you know no. plan to make things happen but that's no. his nature too is to just to believe that. That he's going, he's going to uh, can arrange things to turn out the way he wants them. But I think even in that moment, the way he delivers, I think you can actually feel just a kind of a little bit of sorry for him too. But especially for uh, we're talking about Ted and kind of the David Bruce has kind of a tricky tightrope to walk there because he has to kind of play the sort of naive, almost home home country boy kind of you know just kind yeah. of small town naive, wide eyed character that you that will enough to make you understand why it makes total sense that Isabel as she's becoming more worldly and really entering into this art that she yeah. really loves and that he's not really a part of that world. I mean that happens in real life, you know, that's yep. what draws people apart. So you feel sorry for him, but at the same time you understand what's happening to her. And then with Eric, you know, is is one of the things I love about the film too is it waits so late in the film to drop that extra sting that Ted's the one who introduced her to Eric. And so many films would have brought that up much earlier in the film and much more dramatically. He just sort of drops it as kind of a throwaway line, like, oh, yeah, I introduced them, and you, we already know what's going on. It's like, ouch, that hurts, man, because yeah, that's real yeah. life, too. That happens in real life, too. So I think it's that's what I was saying back saying again, is this is actually a, would, it works as a really believable human drama if you take away the, you know, the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole heart removing and, you know, and, 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 <laughs> each other yeah. and all this the, stuff. Yeah. The cardiectomies and, and the, the living death. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it's good stuff. I mean, I really do. Like I said, I think this film's a strong film, and, and I definitely believe I'll watch it from time to time just because I want to watch it and enjoy it again. So that's why I landed with a seven on it there. So Understandable, understandable. I think uh, there's this great quote from Turin Bay, who uh, was when asked about this particular film, uh, he said he had uh, quite high regard for his co-stars. George Zuko was one of the finest gentlemen I have ever worked with and the last person in the world I would suspect to play horror parts. Mm -hmm. Except for his fantastic menacing eyes and his voice, which he could manage so well, there was nothing horrible about him at all. <laughs> Apparently, he was quite well liked. Yeah, cool. Isabel, in every town I try to make Ted let me take him home. But... I know. You're afraid he'll have another attack. That's why I wanted to talk to you alone. I've looked forward to this tour so much, and it's turned out to be a nightmare. He seems obsessed. He's convinced that if he goes home, or if he doesn't stay as close to you as possible, that something very terrible will happen. However, he has agreed that he's seriously ill, and that he can't think of marriage. Yes, he told me that. Oh, he was so pathetic. 
so eager for me to say he was wrong, but I was so afraid he'd have another of those terrible attacks that, well, I... Yes, I know. You encouraged him. That was neither wise nor fair to anyone concerned. I know. That's what Eric said. That's why we're both, Eric and I, turning to you for help. Eric and you? Yes, I guess you've seen how we feel about each other. I can't understand Ted not seeing. We see what we want to see most of the time, Isabel. Even I, a scientist, have such moments of weakness. Then, then you will help us? What is it you want me to do? You and Eric? Well, Ted hasn't had an attack for several days now. He must be well enough to face the truth. And, but, well, we thought that, that you'd be better to tell him because, well, you're a doctor and you'd know best how to say it and when. Then, after he knows, he'll surely agree to, to go home. When he knows, I think Ted will agree to anything. Then, then you'll do it? You'll help us? You'll let me choose my own time? Oh, of course, of course. Very well. The, the joy of this film really is watching George Zuko. He yeah, is... Yeah. If you take him out of it, and as you mm. posited earlier, mm. substitute another, you know, mm. another great actor who plays yeah. mad scientist roles during this period, it's going to tip over into one direction or the other mm. a little too far, yeah. and either not not work or work in a very different way. Mm. And um, I think that uh, we're very lucky to have this film kind of teetering on the edge. Of, it's like a seesaw, perfectly balanced. It doesn't go yes. too far in one direction or the other. Yeah. Even though I think that there are some people who would say that it is too gruesome and kind of grisly at times. Yeah. Especially for 1943. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it works really well. It's uh, it's effective. It's definitely entertaining. Oh yeah. And it is. Um, I can understand a little bit of carping about the uh, initial pacing of the film, mm-hmm. but. I never feel that I never feel that way. I understand it, but I don't feel it when I'm watching the movie. Yeah, me either. And I can also understand too because it was it was you and I both you know said that yeah the 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 basic driving thing <clears throat> as far as the actual mad science going on there is you know is is there's there's really you know the fact that we can't really find any practical use for this mad <laughs> yeah. scientist is is you know science is is a little bit of a you know you'd like there to be in some way they could have finagled it to make it sound like. You know, maybe there was a little bit more of a point to what he or did at least initially set out to do, but that's okay. You know, it's I will say the film has one of the wisest lines that I've ever heard, and I want to make sure that I we don't end before I mention this is a, a wisdom imparted by Milburn Stone as a, as the uh, officer Macklin there. Uh, so everyone pay close attention to this when they think that Eric, when they're starting to suspect that Eric may be behind all these, he says, "You can't tell about these musicians. A lot of them are pretty queer ducks." <laughs> So I just want, if there's one line you remember, folks, and take with you from this, I want you to t- take that one with there. So. Well, it certainly fits the man that I'm speaking with. Yes, 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 and I'll agree with you. You're a weirdo, dude. <laughs> uh, well, I, I do want to get to uh, Critics' Corner real quick. Oh, please, we, yes. We've got some, we got some interesting stuff here. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold back on you. I'm gonna drop Bosley Crowder Bosley, right in your lap. Right. I'm well, gonna drop him right in your lap. Want, yeah. <laughs> uh, New York Times, December the 11th, 1943. Bosley Crowder. Uh, we would call him a definitely second-rate ghoul. And if anyone is privileged to be crazy, it's us poor folks who have to look at such things. I love it. 
exactly what you'd expect from Bosley, who never met a horror movie that he didn't shit on. Yeah, so. you know what I picture him as now because I've been rewatching those early classic years of Saturday Night Live. Do you remember the character Dan Aykroyd would play when it'd be like bad playwright, bad plays, or bad music? Because he'd play this he. He played this uh, this critic on Leonard Pimp Garnell, and he would host like the oh, little skits God. like bad, you know, bad musical, and you know that bad was really musical. that was really bad, wasn't it? That so was that truly was, terrible. That, that's who I see now when I think of Bosley Crowther. Is <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, from 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 others around the war, around the way, the uh, the New York Daily Mirror, December the eleventh, nineteen forty three. Bylined by Frank Quinn, it's remarkable how Hollywood can limit itself to a scant half-dozen basic plots, yet come up with the variations and combinations thereof for original screenplays. Current Chiller is a rehash of Frankenstein and the romance angle formulas. Incredible, impossible, but interesting enough to whet the appetite. That's fair. Yeah, that one kind of balances, I guess. The Hollywood Reporter, October 29th, 1943. James Hogan directs the yarn in a straightforward manner, which reflects his knowledge that the tale is spine-chilling enough without dwelling on the most horrible details. David Bruce plays the medical student for a sizable personal hit. Um, Wanda Hale from the New York Daily News, December the 11th, 1943. Two and a half stars. If you're willing to enter into the spirit of the horror of this Rialto theater offering, you'll get your creeps and chills in abundance at what George Zuko making with his evil eyes, mm. does to corpses and a human being. Enough occurs to prevent the chills from leaving you until it's over. Mm-hmm. Seems positive to me. Yeah. yeah. New York Post, December the 11th, 1943, bylined Archer Winston. This ghoul, handicapped by a severe case of schizophrenia, and at the same time carrying mental burdens of sex and science, mm. proves a dangerous fellow. Mm-hmm. Note the old adage, Mad ghouls are bad ghouls. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so, you know, kind of makes bad yeah, people. Yeah, a lot yeah, of but, people but reviewing it. Actually, are, a little more positive than I was yeah. expecting from that time because you figure by the end, if nothing else, that they would be just so tired of the whole, like, you know, just kind of start writing this stuff by rote. But it, it obviously pulled some of these people in, you know, kind of got yeah. there into it. So that's good. That's good to hear. It it, it it does surprise me a little yeah. bit to to mm. to read. I hate to say this. It always surprises me when I see good when I read good reviews of horror movies. Yeah. You know, in you know, from the nineteen sixties back. Mm-hmm. I always expect there to be some caveat, even if they're expressing some level of entertainment value that they got out of it. I expect them to you know backhand slap it or you know kind of sideswipe it on mm. the way out the door. Yeah. Um, right. With you know some some form of, of criticism that, you know, puts them in the position of positing themselves as above it all anyway. Mm-hmm. And that still takes place to a good degree. But when you can read some of these reviews from the time period and realize, oh, well, they're not they're not denigrating this film. They're just saying, you know, this one has, you know, certain features that mm-hmm. people who like these kinds of films are really going to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, right. So I I'm always happy to come back to this movie. And I'll I'll say there was a there was a, a jump in my step when I realized this was the next one up and it's and it's mm-hmm. fun to get to it mm-hmm. and um, I think that it's one luckily I mean like I say we can now see it on Blu-ray and there's even a commentary track on the Blu-ray uh, I do have my my nits to pick about the commentary track it's yeah, done, me too me too yeah it's it's done by a fellow who uh, is very knowledgeable about the film's producer Ben Pivar mm-hmm. uh, wrote a book he, about him in fact yeah, yeah. He wrote a book about him. And uh, that, and that, unfortunately, is also my problem: is that 
well over half the track is him talking about Ben Pivar and his other films. Uh, yes, as yes. opposed to the film we're looking yeah. at. Uh, yeah, I did have a problem with that. He, you know, he dropped some good bits of knowledge in there. You know, but the fact that yeah, the fact that he did spend too much time really talking, like even the plots of of yeah. other films, is just that was yeah, kind of necessary there. Yeah, it's kind of like. Could we, you know, yeah. there's a lot to say about this movie, and yeah. you're just letting it slide by, in my yeah. opinion. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. I would have treated the film differently. I would yeah. have talked about different things. Mm-hmm. But, hey, still, the fact that there is a commentary track out there on The Mad Ghoul yeah. tells you we're in the right timeline sometimes here yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, and, and Ben Pivar will become much more important to our show going forward because now we're really yeah. about to dig into, like, his, his first what would be considered a horror movie for Universal was Captain Wild Woman, which yeah. were just passed. Starting here now, we're going to hear his name an awful lot more producer-wise coming up for a lot of the films we got ahead of us. So, yeah. This is true. This is true. So with that said, I guess we will uh, wrap things up here. Um, like to point out that we're kind of going to deviate a little bit in this series next. The next film that we would normally be doing, the next book, the next film that would come up in the Universal Horrors book is... The very first of the Inner Sanctum films, Calling mm. Dr. Death. Mm. Now, here's the thing. Troy and I gamed this out a couple of months ago where we were talking about how we were going to handle the uh, the Inner Sanctum films. And this is what we're going to do. We're only going to do three shows on the Inner Sanctum series of six films. We're going to do them two at a time. Yep. But to, uh, to put us in the position where we're doing two at a time, we're going to not talk about Calling Dr. Death next. We're going to skip to the movie in between yeah. the first two <laughs> Inner Sanctum films. We're going to skip to the Sherlock, the next Sherlock Holmes film mm-hmm. that was produced, which is The Spider Woman. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk next time about The Spider Woman. Uh, we'll get uh, Beth back on the show with us. Exactly. Beth will be joining us again to talk about Sherlock Holmes movies. And so that is what we'll be doing next. And then the show we'll do after that We'll be covering the first two of the Inner Sanctum movies, Calling Dr. Death and The Weird Woman. The Weird Woman, yes. Okay? So that is our plan moving forward. Um, do with it what you will. In other mm. words, go watch The Spider Woman. Yes. Not a, not, that, how's that for homework? Yeah. That's painless homework. How come my teachers never said that in elementary school? <laughs> class, I want you to go home and watch The Spider Woman this weekend. You know, <laughs> yeah. that would have been, I go home and been watch that. an old movie that you're going to enjoy. Yes. <laughs> Nevertheless, thanks to everyone for listening to the show. Hope you have enjoyed it. If you want to drop us your opinions on The Mad Ghoul or any of the other universal horror films of the 1940s or any of the other movies that we've covered here recently on the show... TheBloodyPit at gmail.com is the place to write. We will be glad to hear from you. So, thank you for listening. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon.
The discovery of this ancient painting in one of the most famous temples was of major importance. It was a signpost in the wilderness of clues.